Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today at long last, uh, and I shall explain that in a moment, I am absolutely delighted to welcome to the programme Dr. M.R.X. Dentith, who is an academic philosopher and editor of the remarkable book, which we're going to be talking about today, called Taking Conspiracy Theories Seriously published by Roman and Littlefield uh, in 2018, which is a collection of articles by fellow academics, including herself, working in the areas of philosophy, sociology, psychology, things like that, on the subject of, and I love this phrase, on the subject of conspiracy theory theory. Let me say that again. Conspiracy theory theory. Dr. Dentith earned a PhD in philosophy at the University of Auckland with a thesis entitled In Defense of Conspiracy Theories. They're the author of The Philosophy of Conspiracy Theories, Paul Grave, 2014, which was apparently the first single author book-length treatment of the philosophical issues surrounding conspiracy theory. And as I've said, editor of the book Taking Conspiracy Theories Seriously. They've been a fellow in the Institute for Research in the Humanities at the University of Bucharest and the New Europe College in Bucharest and currently Associate Professor of Philosophy at Beijing Normal University. Uh, They're also the host of the podcast, The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy and a former member of Compact, which some of you may have heard of, Comparative Analysis of Conspiracy Theories in Europe, funded by the EU. After all that, uh, Dr. Dentith, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme after all this time. It's an absolute pleasure, Julian. It's wonderful at long last to be speaking with you me here in the UK and you over there in New Zealand, 11 hours difference. I'd, I hope you can uh, stay awake for this conversation because I've got the advantage here because it's morning for me, but it's uh, it's getting quite late for you. What time is it for you? Uh, it is just turned 8.40. So it's not too late. It's not as if I have to be in bed by 10. <laughs> right. And I hope you're a night owl, are you? I I certainly can be when I'm working. Okay, very good. And I guess I'd better explain to listeners why I'd say all this time. I mean, anybody who's been looking at the schedule page on and off will know why, but I just have to say for everybody else that I started organising this interview back in 2019, actually, but for so very many reasons that have basically prevented me from getting around to finishing a whole load of academic books that I have here sent to me by publishers. I simply hadn't got around to finishing this until now, but now I have. And quite honestly, I can say that I think it is a remarkable book. In my view, I think it's an essential book because it gives a very clear and informative insight into the philosophical work that's being done in this area of conspiracy theory theory. I'm going to ask you about that in a second, because I think, you know, it's so important that we understand what we are doing if and when we do ask questions about various events, you know, ask, is this, was this such and such the result of conspiracy? So this book really helps us to do that. And I think uh, it's challenging, but also very rewarding. And I do hope listeners will take the plan and buy it. Although, as I'm sure you will agree, it's not cheap, is it? <laughs> it's an academic book. It's not cheap. Well, although it's not as expensive as my first book. Unfortunately, one of the problems with academic publishing mm. is that publishers seem to only want to sell to libraries and not individuals. Mm. So, I mean, my first book, The Philosophy of Conspiracy Theories, routinely sells from booksellers for about 100 US dollars. Mm-hmm. So taking conspiracy theory seriously, which I believe is only about 40 US dollars, is an absolute bargain in comparison. <laughs> and that's the paperback, presumably. 
Yes, yes. So I yes. hate to think how much the hardback costs. Although then you get into the other weird thing where it turns out the ebook doesn't actually cost substantially less than the paperback. And I don't know about mm. you, but I suspect that ebooks are a lot cheaper to mass produce mm. than physical copies of books. Absolutely. Uh, I think I saw £80 for the hardback copy. And of course, I was delighted that when the publisher sent it to me, they sent me a hardback copy. And at the time, you were receiving your first box of books, and they were all paperbacks, which I thought was wonderfully ironic. <laughs> yes, I've never seen a hardback version of the book. You've got, you've probably got a collector's item there. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful to have. It really is. Okay, so let's, um, we're going to be talking about this book, but let's start with you. You, uh, Dr. Dentith, how did you get into philosophy? And particularly, what, why did you choose to specialise in this rather unusual area of epistemology? Well, I'll answer the first question first, because that always it always makes sense to hmm. deal with things chronologically. Yes. Unless, of course, you're in a really weird film where you want to start from the end and work backwards. So I have speech disfluency, so I have what's commonly called a stutter or a stammer, which meant that through most of my childhood, I either went to speech therapy or speech and drama classes. So I became incredibly fond of debating, which was the only kind of theatrical thing offered in my secondary school. And so I went through my secondary schooling debating all the time. And when I got to university, I found that the closest thing to a decent debate was to be found in philosophy tutorials. So I initially was planning to do a BA in classics and archaeology. I quickly fell in love with philosophy, hmm. which meant that when it came to do my graduate work, I thought, hmm, actually maybe philosophy is the way to go. Hmm. And at that point, I was actually planning to be a continental philosopher. So I actually wrote my MA thesis on the comparison of the work of G.W.F. Hegel hmm. and the Jesuit philosopher Pieterhard de Chardin. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And that then led to my writing an MA, which kind of challenged my views on the world and challenged my theism at the time. I then took a few years out from doing philosophy, wandered the world, doing odd jobs here and there, and then I was kind of just drawn back to the discipline. And of course, if you're being drawn back to a discipline and you've already done your initial bout of graduate work, you need to find a thesis, a dissertation to do to kind of get you back into the philosophical fold. And that was where my interest in conspiracy theories came in, because I grew up in a very small town in Auckland, New Zealand called Devonport, and Devonport has its own bespoke conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. So Devonport, like most of Auckland, was fortified in the late 19th century, early 20th century, initially because of the fear of a Prussian invasion of the South Pacific, and then, of course, worries about World War One and World War Two. And so Devonport has a military installation in it called North Head, which is a fortified hillside, which is littered with tunnels. And as I was growing up in the 80s in Devonport, all these conspiracy theories about hidden tunnels deep within North Head, hiding all sorts of treasures from discarded seaplanes from the beginning of the 20th century to badly disposed of ammunition when North Head was basically defortified and became a public park, were the things that people talked about 
across fences in their backyards mm. over dinner. Some people were adamant there were hidden tunnels under North Head that people could not get access to. And their best friends who had grown up in Devonport with them and explored North Head with them when they were children were going, no, you're dreaming. There's no hidden tunnels there. You're just misremembering things. Now, this actually became a topic of national importance in Aotearoa, New Zealand, because one of the conspiracy theories about the hidden tunnels under North Head was that conspiracy theory about discarded ammunition. And the worry was... If ammunition had been improperly disposed of deep within North Head, then it's probably mouldering away in the hillside. It's probably becoming more and more unstable with time. And if that really is the case, someone should go in, get it out and dispose of it properly. Mm. And so there were two major archaeological investigations of the hillside enacted mm. by the government. There were numerous historical works undertaken to try and find out exactly what had gone on when the hill was defortified and growing up in devonport in the 80s it was a case of there's an awful lot of talk of conspiracy going on around me how do i sort this out hmm. which conspiracy theories should i take seriously and which ones should i discard and that became the inspiration for the phd that i did Wow. So how did that, I mean, did that connect at all to your previous philosophical work in Hegel and Teodoshada? I don't see an immediate Not connection. at all. No. Just going back to the work that I did in my BA on archaeology initially. So the initial PhD proposal was actually looking at the philosophy of archaeology and how we understand archaeological explanations and working out what to do with this kind of weird conspiracy theory that was conflicting with the archaeological evidence at the time. Hmm. But it became very, very clear early on in the project that this wasn't going to be a project in the philosophy of archaeology. This was going to be a project in epistemology, the study of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And it was going to be a case of generalizing from this particular case to talking about conspiracy theories in general. And kind of what's interesting about my PhD is that for something that started off as an explanation of what happened on North Head, North Head does not get mentioned a single time in that project at all. <laughs> and how did it go down with the university when you were suggesting, I, mean, I don't think you actually called it in defense of conspiracy theories when you first suggested your project, um, were there raised eyebrows or anything? There were, but they weren't raised eyebrows necessarily because I wanted to look at conspiracy theories. They were raised eyebrows for people going, well, this doesn't seem like a particularly philosophically important topic. Right. And actually, that's where I had to give it a shout out to my friend Brian L. Keeley. So Brian L. Keeley wrote a paper called Of Conspiracy Theories that was published in the Journal of Philosophy back in 1999. The Journal of Philosophy is one of the most prestigious journals in the philosophical discipline. And it was the fact that another philosopher had written on conspiracy theories and got it into a major journal that made the Department of Philosophy at the University of Auckland go, well, we're not entirely sure this is a relevant philosophical topic, but at the same time, someone has already published on this, so you might as well give it a go. Mm. Just as a matter of interest, was your mentor Charles Pigden for that PhD? 
Uh, so he was my thesis examiner. Ah, so I was okay. actually supervised by Justine Kingsbury and Jonathan McEwen Green. Okay. And because, of course, uh, Charles Pigton is one of the contributors to this volume and somebody whose essays I have read in the past. Um, okay, well, I think we really do need to get a definition of what you mean by conspiracy theory theory as opposed to conspiracy theory. So go on. What do you mean by conspiracy theory theory? So conspiracy theory theory is the theory of conspiracy theory. And it's kind of a philosophical joke in that philosophers like to talk about the theory of things. So we do the philosophy of science, and so we talk about scientific theories and the theory of what constitutes a good or bad scientific theory. And so theory theory is kind of a discipline within philosophy where you're theorizing about how people put forward putative explanations or hypotheses for events. So yes, conspiracy theory theory simply is the theory of conspiracy theory, which can be understood as the theory as to what makes a conspiracy theory good or bad, hmm. or the way that people theorize about these things called conspiracy theories. Hmm. Yes, it's important to get that established, because actually, even in the book, one of the contributors, Gina Husting, says that a lot of people don't understand what she studies in this respect. They actually think that she's something to do with actual conspiracy theories rather than conspiracy theory theory. Do you find that too? Do people confuse the two? Yes. I mean, people do seem to assume that if you study conspiracy theories and you admit to studying conspiracy theories, then you're probably someone who believes an awful lot of conspiracy theories. Now, that may or may not be the case, mm. but when you're doing conspiracy theory theory, you can actually study conspiracy theories and be agnostic as to whether they're true or false, yes. but be really interested in how people argue for or against them and analyze whether those arguments are good or bad. Mm. And I mentioned that you had this role with Compact, uh, this network of academics, which I believe has come to an end. I think you told me before the interview. I'm interested to know what traction your views as a particularist had, and we'll come to that term in just a moment, perhaps you'll explain as part of the answer to this question, we know what traction your views gained within that network. So I came into Compact at around about either the end of year two or the beginning of year three as the Romanian representative, which of course is quite obvious. I've got a very thick Romanian accent, as I'm sure your listeners can attest to. Uh, so well, you do, but you're hiding it, yes. Yes. It turns out that your affiliation is dictated by the research institute you're attached to. So I was with the University of Bucharest at the sure. time I joined Compact, which meant I became a Romanian representative, despite speaking no Romanian whatsoever, and confusing other Romanians who were actually involved <laughs> in the project. Lovely. Now, as a particularist, someone who thinks that you can't really go around just dismissing conspiracy theories because they're called conspiracy theories, but rather you have to assess individual conspiracy theories on their particulars, so whether the evidence is good or bad, hmm. I was walking into a room of social scientists who, by and large, did have and probably still do have fairly dismissive views of conspiracy theories. So I think it's fair to say, and I think most of my colleagues in Compact will admit, most of the members of Compact see conspiracy theories as mad, bad, and dangerous, 
And part of the purpose of the project was to try to find a way to combat conspiracy theories Mm. in our policies and in our discourse. Now, my perspective is that, of course, there are going to be conspiracy theories which are bad. It also turns out there's a lot of conspiracy theories which, upon investigation, turn out to be true. So a blanket dismissal of conspiracy theories just because they're called conspiracy theories isn't tenable. And so I did find a lot of my work in Compact was simply reminding people that conspiracies do occur. Mm. People do theorize about those conspiracies. They're often pejoratively called conspiracy theorists and sometimes quite unjustly. And that we need to keep that in mind, because if you're going to talk about the threat of conspiracy theory in your policies, you also need to be talking about the threat of actual conspiracies, which go undetected because we're simply calling them conspiracy theories and thinking that that pejorative gloss is all we've got to do. Yes, now that's very interesting because I have been sent links to Compact in the past and people have said to me, oh, look, you can see here that there is government funding of research that is not really trying to get answers to the questions about the nature of conspiracy theorizing, but is actually trying to find ways of clamping down on conspiracy theorizing. So what you've said actually does fit with people's fears about that. Yes, and I think it's in part because there are a lot of assumptions going on in the wider academic study of conspiracy theory, the conspiracy theory, theory literature. And I think it's fair to say that there's a whole bunch of academics who come from the perspective that conspiracy theories are bad. Mm. Now, there's an entire story you can tell as to where they've got that view from. I'm sure we'll be talking about people like Karl Popper and Richard Hofstetter later on in this conversation. We shall, The role they played in the early 20th century in the way that we characterize talk of conspiracy theories. But it also turns out there's a whole bunch of researchers like myself, and it's largely people in philosophy, although we're seeing people adopting this view in sociology, cultural studies, and anthropology as well, who are going, no, actually, we need to be looking at the particulars of individual conspiracy theories because we know conspiracies occur. And so, yes, it is true that Compact was set up initially as a project to kind of look at why conspiracy theories are a problem. But there was pushback by academics like myself within the organization going, no, that can't be the end of the story. Mm. If that's going to be the story you tell, you're going to need to tell a really, really good story to the people who believe conspiracy theories, which turned out to be true. Yes, indeed. Well, well done to you for standing in that uncomfortable position, because no doubt it was at times. Um, now, this brings us to this superb book, Taking Conspiracy Theories Seriously, because it is, if I'm going to characterize it this way, and you correct me if I'm wrong, I would say, you know, that it is a collection of essays that essentially are advocating the particularist position that you describe, although some different flavors of particularism within the collection get discussed. Um, and a large part of the book is devoted to responding to criticism from various social scientists, types, psychologists, etc., um, who remain wedded to this generalist view, see conspiracy theorizing as essentially irrational, dysfunctional, dangerous, etc. Um, and you and your co-authors essentially argue against that. So could you give us 
an overall impression of this book in terms of who your co-authors are, what the main objective is. And that, of course, will then bring up this business about, you know, what sparked this debate with these social scientists. Well, the main objective of the book, unfortunately, and I'm using that in air quotes there, really was to a large extent a commercial proposition. So Hmm. the editor of the Social Epistemology Review and Reply Collective had seen there had been quite a lot of popularity with the articles published on that journal or sorry, that website, which is also a journal on conspiracy theory. And so he suggested to me maybe there's a book in this. So the actual motivation for the edited collection really was someone going, oh, uh, we are associated with a publication house, so it would be really great to put these articles in a rewritten form in a state that people can then buy it to bring some money back to the trust that runs the Social Epistemology Review and Reply Collective. So you might go... It's not necessarily the most noble okay. of of rationales as to why the book came into existence. That being said, because no one actually makes money from writing books, only publishers make money from publishing books, I really haven't seen any financial recompense to this project at all. So I went into it with the best of intentions. Mm. And that intention was basically to come up with the most up-to-date arguments as to why we should be particularists about these things called conspiracy theories. Because, as you've noted with respect to the project at Compact, and as I've noted in numerous chapters and articles over the years, there is this striking tendency by most of the conspiracy theory theorists to take what's called a generalist approach towards conspiracy theories and say, look, conspiracy theories as a class are mad, bad, and dangerous. And thus, when you hear a conspiracy theory, that either means it's prima facie false, although luckily not many people believe that, because Hmm. even the most ardent generalists tend to accept that at least some conspiracy theories have turned out to be warranted. Mm. Otherwise, they have an awkward time describing what happened with the Watergate investigations. I find it incredible that anybody can actually argue that position, that extreme position. Uh, uh, Um, I mean, it seems to me as after saying, you know, the other version of generalism, which would be that, you know, all conspiracy theories are true. I mean, it seems... You're you're (laughs) quite right. It's a very weird view to have. And unfortunately, I think this kind of speaks to the fact that Some people are so confident in their generalism that they end up making claims which, when you actually start to think about it, really can't be true. It can't be the case that anything labeled a conspiracy theory is prima facie false. Most generalists kind of end up thinking that, no, there's something suspicious about belief in conspiracy theories, And that's either the people who believe them have some kind of psychological issue or the kind of arguments put forward for conspiracy theories are bad. And so that gives you a kind of prima facie grounds for thinking that they're typically unlikely and thus generally belief in conspiracy theories is going to turn out to be irrational. And the purpose of the book was basically to kind of fight back against that by saying, no, actually, we need to take individual conspiracy theories seriously. And if they're wrong, explain why they're wrong. And conversely, if they're right, explain why we ought to believe them. Because we know conspiracies occur. And presumably, 
no one wants conspiracies to occur in their democracies. So we should be on the lookout for these things. Mm. Yes, and I get the impression that some generalists have the view that, okay, conspiracies may happen, but we should not really expect them to happen in sort of government circles, um, that sort of unofficial conspiracy theories are the ones that are objectionable. I mean, that will come to the question of, you know, what counts as a conspiracy theory. Let me come to that in a second. Um, uh, the first question really is, what is a conspiracy? You said we don't want conspiracies to be happening, but I mean, according to, I think it may even have been your definition in one of the articles that um, conspiracy involves conspirators, secrecy and goals. Well, I think even the example of a birthday party, a surprise birthday party came up. So we do want birthday parties. I quite like surprise birthday parties. See, unusually enough for someone who writes about surprise parties, no one's ever thrown one for me, which does mean that when it does occur, it's going to be an incredibly surprising thing uh, and may cause a heart attack. I don't really want that. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I, I take a conspiracy to be two or more people working in secret towards some end, and that's an incredibly general definition of conspiracy. Most of the time, when people are worried about conspiracies. They're not worried about things like the organization of a surprise party or maybe some family members colluding to hide presents around the house so that children can't find them. They tend to be concerned about conspiracies that happen in kind of institutional settings. So the reason why people are concerned about political conspiracies because we don't really want politicians to act in secret towards some end, not telling the public why they're doing things or lying to the public about why they did a particular thing. So most of the focus in the literature on conspiracy theory tends to be very much focused on those political cases. Now, I think that's kind of a mistake because Hmm. if we want to talk about whether belief in theories about conspiracies are good or bad, we need to be looking at all the different kinds of conspiracies there are and all the ways that people theorize about the existence of those conspiracies. Because if I suspect my friends are working behind my back to organize a surprise party for me, I not only think they're conspiring against me, hopefully in a beneficial way, I also am theorizing about a conspiracy that they're involved in. And I think that counts as a conspiracy theory in that case, even though it's not particularly of any pith and moment. Okay. So does this connect with the title of your previous website, All Embracing Episto or something like that? Are you trying to broaden the epistemological palette here so that we're not making these sort of artificial divisions between what is a a respectable conspiracy and what's an unrespectable conspiracy, but just looking at the whole field of conspiracy and assessing the whole thing with an even hand. Is that the sort of approach? Yeah. And I kind of think of this in the way that my friend and colleague Lee Basham thinks about this. He goes, well, look, conspiracies as they're commonly understood are a form of deceit. It's a case of people keeping secrets from others to hide what they're really up to. Mm. And if we think of conspiracies as a special form of deceit that we ignore with respect to all the other kinds of deceits that humans are involved in, 
then you might somehow be justified in going, oh, you know, conspiracies aren't particularly common, so theories about them are likely to be true. Mm -hmm. But if you take it that actually there's a spectrum of deceit from the liar child tales just to see how language works to the bold lies that members of governments tell when they want to justify the invasion of a country overseas based on evidence they know is specious because they invented it themselves, mm. then you end up going, well, actually, deceit's a fairly common feature in human interactions. So why are we speciating these things out and treating only some of these deceits as being important? when actually an understanding of deceit in general is actually quite informative to how we react to things. Mm, yes, fascinating. Excellent point. All right, okay, so what about this term conspiracism? This comes up several times in the book. Now, the term conspiracism has a pejorative flavor, which is interesting because it is separate from the term conspiracy theory, conspiracy theorizing, which usually has this pejorative label. But by using conspiracism, the two terms are separated from each other. Um, so how would you actually define conspiracism? My stance on conspiracism basically comes from a 2018 article I published in the journal Argumenta, which is called The Problem of Conspiracism. And in that article, I look at the way that conspiracism as a term, along with conspiracist ideation, is used by social scientists, particularly the work we find in social psychology, and go, look, when we're talking about conspiracy theories and the suggestion that a conspiracy exists, we can either talk about the kind of epistemics of how people theorize about the existence of conspiracies, or we could talk about some kind of psychopathology, mm. about why people might see conspiracies where they don't exist. And so I take it that because conspiracism is typically the term we find in the social psychological literature, that we should put all of that psychological questioning stuff under the rubric of conspiracism and keep that separate from epistemology of how people might theorize about the existence of conspiracies. Right. Now, I do this for the sheer fact that I'm actually not entirely convinced that there are conspiracists out there. So I think most people, whether they're right or wrong in suspecting that a conspiracy exists, are engaging in an evidential process. <clears throat> now, that doesn't mean they're going to come to the best conclusions, because if you argue from bad evidence, then you're going to get bad outcomes. But I by and large think that when people are theorizing about the existence of conspiracies, they're engaging in a evaluation of the evidence they have to hand. And there might be some people out there who believe conspiracy theories for any old reason or for bad psychological rationales. But I kind of think that's a distraction from the way that most people reason towards the existence of conspiracies. Okay, a distraction, but you would therefore say there are people, there are some people who have this conspiracy, well, I'll use the term that comes up again, a mindset, a conspiracist mindset. You would say there are certain people 
who conform to that, but you're saying it's not helpful. Oh, also, not, not helpful. Yeah, well, so what, mm. what I'm saying is that there might be, there might be people. I, I don't have to say they do exist because I actually do have suspicions that maybe we've invented a boogeyman of some kind. Mm. So it mm. is, it is logically possible that there are people out there who believe conspiracy theories because they might have some kind of psychological dysfunction or malfunction. Yeah. But I'm not committed to the idea that these people necessarily exist. Could it be not as severe as that? I mean, I could imagine somebody being brought up in a household where mum and dad or whatever, they, they talk about conspiracy theories a lot of the time. And so the child is brought up in that situation. And so from their point of view, it's quite rational for them to suspect conspiracies all over the place that most people perhaps wouldn't, um, although they may not have warrant for what they're thinking about. Nevertheless, that's how they're brought up. Are they therefore not irrational? It's just the way they are. And yes, I think that's a plausible story to tell, because we also know that that story is true with respect to certain political beliefs or religious beliefs. People tend to inherit Mm. their political beliefs from their parents and their grandparents, and they tend to take on the religious practices of their surrounding community. And I'm not saying this is the case in every situation, but often when you question people, so why are you a Labour voter or why are you a Tory voter? The story they tell isn't typically, oh, well, you know, the policy platform that's put forward by the party last year really. <laughs> yes. They'll go, no, yeah. well, you know, my parents always voted for this party and you know, my grandparents voted for this party. So that's why I do too. Or you know, why are you a Christian mm rather than a Muslim. Oh, because I went to a C of E church when I was a child. Okay, so that's interesting. Whatever the formation of your religious practice is largely formed as a response to the culture in which you're living in. And it's quite hard, therefore, to say to somebody like that, well, you're irrational for holding whatever view you hold, because you were brought up that way, and but you may not have thought it through, so not have warrant for your belief. You may then come to investigate and believe that you do have warrant later on, but uh, yes, okay. Um, we go on forever about that sort of thing. Um, okay, I wanted to ask you about how we might adjudicate between conspiracy theories, uh, what tools there are perhaps to help us with this. You mentioned a few actually at the beginning of the book um, to do with probability, likelihood of conspiracy theories. And since this is a philosophical conversation here, could you describe what those are? Prior probability, posterior probability, and relative probability to do with these conspiracy theories? Certainly. So the beginning of the book is a reprint of an article I published in the journal Social Epistemology when inferring to a conspiracy theory might be the best explanation. And in that, I kind of engage in an informal Bayesian analysis, so talking about the way that inference to the best explanation works by pointing out that there are times in which inferring to a conspiracy theory turns out to be the best explanation of an event. Now, when we're engaging in an inference to the best explanation, we're using a whole bunch of evidence to kind of base our probability calculus as to which is the best explanation to believe. Mm. So a large amount of that calculus is predicated on things we already know. Mm. And we take that to be the kind of the prior probability, the evidence that informs our worldview. Mm. Now, when I was working on the book back in the beginning of 2018, when all of the invited chapters had come in, 
I was living in Bucharest in Romania. And there's something really interesting about living in an Eastern European country where people are happy to admit they've got a corrupt government they don't trust. So Romanians are, by and large, quite happy to admit that PSD, the Romanian Social Democrats, who are the successor to the Communist Party under Ceausescu, that fell in 1989, are very corrupt. They engage in a whole bunch of activity where they just lie to the public about things all the time. And so Romanians are going, look, our lived experience is that our government is corrupt and they cannot be trusted. So they take it that the probability the government is engaging in a conspiracy at any given time is actually quite high. And I can compare that to growing up in Aotearoa, New Zealand, where we have a very open government. We're taken to be one of the least corrupt governments, at least within the West. And people don't really suspect our government gets up to much bad stuff at all. So the prior probability calculus that a New Zealander does indicates that conspiracies are quite rare. So depending on where you live in the world or the kind of culture or family you live in, you're going to have very different views as to how conspired or unconspired your world turns out to be. Yes. So that kind of gets us to the prior probability aspect. Yes, and I suppose it wouldn't be necessary that you would still be living in that. You could move to a different culture and then still be suspicious of government because of your background. Yes, and indeed, actually, there are surveys of Romanian attitudes towards governments when they move overseas and how long it takes for Mm. their views about the new country they're in to shift as they kind of go away from, actually, it's not quite like home. And, of course, there are there are worse situations. I mean, Romania on the CPI, the Corruption Perception Index, is actually kind of a middling country. I think last time they were surveyed, they're, about, they're considered to be about 48% corrupt. And if you were living in, say, Moldova or Hungary, which are more corrupt countries, you might go and live there and go, oh, well, at least Romania is better than here. I mean, these people are really corrupt compared to our politicians at home. Yes. And then I hear stories of people coming from these countries to the West, as we say, and saying, um, oh, yeah, things seem to be going rather the same way. Um, Okay. So that's very helpful for prior probability. What about posterior probability? So posterior probability is the new evidence you have to hand. So it's not sufficient to go, I live in a corrupt country, therefore I think conspiracies occur all the time, therefore a conspiracy is occurring now. Because it is logically possible that you live in a corrupt country and it's the one day of the week where no one's doing anything bad. So what you (laughs) need is is evidence in front of you that makes you go, "Mm, there's inconsistencies, I don't trust what's going on here. And I've actually got another Romanian example. So I arrived in Romania the first time, because I've been there twice, at the end of 2016. And at the end of 2016, the technocratic government that was installed by the EU after the previous Romanian government collapsed due to corruption. Uh, The party that was rejected in 2014, when the government collapsed, got brought back in, because it also turns out that the Romanian political system is such that PSD is corrupt, but the opposition is taken to be worse. So they keep on voting in the least corrupt option of two very corrupt options. 
So PSD gets back into power, and the first thing PSD does is go, well, look, our prison muster is too high. We imprison too many people in Romania. The EU has actually threatened to cut funding to us if we continue to incarcerate people at the level we do. So we are going to change the criminal code so that not only will we not convict as many people for penal sentences in future, but also the penal code will be revised such that we will be releasing low-level criminals back into the community on charges that aren't considered to be things which require a penal turn. And the Romanian people went, that sounds like a really, really good idea, a positive thing to do. Could we see the bill? And the government went, no, uh, we're going to be passing that in a late night session ah, later yes. on this week. You mm. don't need to see the bill. We've told you what's in it. At which point people went, uh, mm. we don't really trust you on this. <laughs> so the bill was leaked and it turned out the bill did not do what the government said it was going to do. Indeed, actually what the bill did was basically legalized graft. So previously, it turned out that if you embezzled public funds up to a certain level, you could get away with it with only a civil fine rather than a criminal conviction. Uh, that threshold went up, not down. And it turned out that politicians who'd been convicted of electoral fraud would have their conviction stripped from them so they'd be able to return back to Parliament, because it turns out that once you've got a electoral fraud conviction, you can't stand in the Romanian Parliament or Senate. So what mm. the bill did was actually legalise graft. And so ro the Romanians who were already suspicious about what the government was going to do when they first opened their mouths, then protested for two weeks in the freezing cold of winter, and the government went, maybe we won't pass this bill <laughs> after all. And so that was a case of taking the available evidence, in this case, the government saying, you don't need to see the bill, and the Romanians going, hmm, I think that suggests that maybe there is a conspiracy going on today after all. Yes, indeed. So just come back to what we were talking about before. How would a, a rank generalist deal with that? Because that's evidence, isn't it? Would they sort of say, well, that's in a, that's in a different country, so that doesn't count? You know, if they were writing in the West, let's say. So, yes, I think the latter is the response that people make. So hmm. I've kind of been pressing on people the last few years. We need to move away from only using Western examples when we're talking about conspiracy yeah. theories and actually start looking at conspiracy theories from different nation states around the world. Because I think we need to diversify our portfolio, to use an awful bit of business speak there. Yeah in order to get a better idea of actually what people mean by the term conspiracy and conspiracy theory generally, and also to go, look, we might be confident that in the West, conspiracies don't happen as often as people think they are, although I think that is a very questionable assumption. Mm. But there are certain parts of the world where conspiracies are probably happening more often than people think. Mm. And in those are cases where people are already suspicious that conspiracies are occurring. So I think one of the problems with generalism is it's very much focused on some ideal policies in the West, and it needs to kind of move its gaze away from there, although there is a kind of interesting footnote to this. So there are an awful lot of philosophers who work on conspiracy theory theory 
who live in Australia and New Zealand. Hmm. Now, Australia may have some interesting political issues of its own, but by and large, Australia and New Zealand are taken to be fairly good exemplars of democracies that are functioning really, really well. And yet there's an awful lot of particular philosophers operating in this area of the world going, yeah, we still have to take those conspiracy theories seriously nonetheless. Okay, coming back to this probability thing, you were talking there about posterior probability. So you were talking about a particular set of evidence. Um, What if the evidence was more circumstantial? So let's say that you had a very definite sense of history in your particular country that lots of conspiracies have taken place. So the prior probability seems quite strong and you're suspecting something's going on at the moment. You don't really have evidence, but you have quite a lot of circumstantial evidence that makes you think, okay, yes, that's me. That probably is going on. Then would that count as what you're calling posterior probability? Well, so that's where things start to overlap with the relative probability discussion. Okay. Because Mm -hmm. when we talk about judging whether some explanation is the best, we kind of have to weigh up rival explanations. Mm. And this is kind of a, a major point in analytic philosophy in the second half of the 20th century. It doesn't really matter how much data you have that by itself doesn't decide which theory is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, it's, the old, it's the classic case that gets used in the teaching of mathematics all the time. If you take a graph and you put a whole bunch of random plots on that graph, it turns out there's an infinite number of lines you could draw through those dots to come up with a mathematical <laughs> algorithm that describes yeah. how those dots are connected. So I have to interrupt there because there are so many conspiracy theorists who say we're connecting the dots for you. So, yes, interesting. (laughs) Connect the dots in so many ways. Yes, sure. When they're connecting the dots, they're using assumptions about the world. They're using Mm. their prior probability calculus as to how likely they think a conspiracy fits in amongst the candidate explanations for the event. They're using the evidence at hand. And what they should be doing, as anyone should be doing when they're trying to work out what to do, they're going, all right, so I, I kind of need to think about the other salient options at hand. Hmm. I mean, is there a better explanation yeah. than conspiracy in this case? Although you might also go, is there a better conspiracy theory hmm. explanation? Hmm. Uh, this is a point that Charles Pigton has made time and time again doesn't really matter what you believe about the events of September the 11th, 2001. Every explanation at hand is a theory about a conspiracy, Mm. whether it's a terrorist plot by al-Qaeda, which was undertaken in secret to enact an attack upon the American mainland, or whether it's a variation of elements within the US government conspired to make the attack look like it was committed by al-Qaeda, All of these are conspiracy theories. So when you're trying to work out which of a relative lot is the best, you might be going conspiracy theory versus non-conspiracy theory, or you might be going, well, actually, the only answer is conspiracy. The question is, which is the best conspiracy theory to believe of this lot? Mm. And contrary to many of those whose views you are opposing, you would not agree that one should privilege official explanations automatically. 
Well, no, because the official explanation in some cases is going to be the result of a conspiracy to make people not believe the right thing. Yes. Okay. Well, now that we have some of those tools in place, would you agree with the statement, and I don't know whether you wrote it or somebody else wrote it in the book, that um, conspiracy theories, in a sense, are like any other theory. They are theories. They are hypotheses to be investigated. There should be nothing different about them in a fundamental sense. I think those are my words, although it's actually quite possible given the other writers in that volume, it could have come from them as well. Yes, I would agree with that entirely. Hmm. Interesting, because that's something that I have you know, said on the podcast a number of times, and it's interesting to find you as a thinker in this area reaching a similar kind of conclusion. Okay, now you did bring up earlier the historical conditioning of the pejorative sense of conspiracy theory. Now, um, it is often said that this pejorative use of conspiracy theory, conspiracy theorists, originated with the CIA when they famously pressured journalists in the media, you know, to counter criticism of the Warren Commission report, etc., on the Kennedy assassination. But as you've already said, it goes a lot further back than that. And even further back, I think, than the two people we're going to talk about. But the two, I think, who had the most impact in conditioning that pejorative use are Richard Hofstadter, the historian, and the well-known philosopher of science, Karl Popper, who I have a lot of respect for, but um, when I've read his views on conspiracy theory in a couple of things that I read by him, um, conjectures and refutations particularly, um, I wasn't impressed. I thought it was a very sort of narrow idea of what conspiracy theory was. Anyway, could you tell us something about um, Richard Hofstadter and Popper and um, you know, what they thought and how they helped to condition the current general view, the negative view of conspiracy theory? So we'll start with Popper, as he's the philosopher. Mm. So in The Open Society and Its Enemies, and I think it's in volume two, not volume one, right. Popper talks about this thing called the conspiracy theory of society. Mm. And the conspiracy theory of society is the idea that there are certain people out there, and I would say he's talking about the conspiracists, right. people who believe that all of history is explainable with references to conspiracies. And Popper goes, well, that's obviously not the case. No one can seriously think that all of history can be explained with reference to conspiracies. So obviously this is a lunatic mm -hmm. position and we should reject it. And as Charles Picton argued in 1995 with Popper Revisited or What is Wrong with Conspiracy Theories, he goes, well, look, Popper's basically erecting a straw man here yeah. because no one actually thinks that history is explainable solely by reference to conspiracies. People who believe in conspiracy theories are simply people who go, some events in the world can be explained with reference to conspiracies. And indeed, as Charles argues quite persuasively, if you're historically or politically literate, you also know that some events in history are explainable with reference to conspiracies. Mm. And in some cases, those conspiracies were pejoratively called conspiracy theories. So Popper is just obviously wrong about this. Mm. Now, I say this very conditionally, in Popper's defense, mm -hmm. it's quite obvious he hasn't thought particularly deeply about <laughs> right. conspiracy theory of society, mm. because it really only occurs about four times in the open society and its enemies and conjectures and refutations. Right. And it only occurs very sporadically. So it's really, really short sections where he's kind of just tossing off a brief note about what he thinks yeah. about these things called conspiracy theories. It's not something which vexes him particularly. Yeah. 
but I do think it has been used by people subsequently as well. Popper kind of gave the definitive word on Mm. the warrant of conspiracy theories and people didn't sit down and go, yeah, but it makes no sense. No, and I think, yes, indeed, I think it is those two books where I read about it. And I agree with you, it does seem to suddenly pop out of the text as if it's a secondary thought and not well thought through. Do you think that it has something to do with Popper's anti-Hegelianism? You you, obviously are interested in in Hegel, um, the the anti-historicism position that he took. Um, Do you think it's covered by that? Yes, I think Popper didn't like the idea of grand historical narratives. Yes. I mean, we see a similar thing with his views on Marx. Yes. So I think he's kind of going, look, people who believe in grand historical narratives, your Hegel's, your Marx, your people like that, they've got the wrong end of the stick. Social phenomena is a lot more complex, and you need to go into much more depth about these things. The only problem is that in reacting to grand historical narratives. In this case, Popper is inventing a grand historical narrative that it's quite clear no one actually believes. Yes, yes. Very interesting. As you say, that has been picked up on as if he's given the last word about this as such an eminent philosopher. All right. um, So what about um, Richard Hofstadter? Um, There are some connections, aren't there, between the two thoughts, these sort of all-embracing conspiracy ideas that he was targeting. Perhaps not the complete theory of history, but um, large-scale conspiracies, you know, the, the, the Masonic conspiracy, the Jesuit conspiracy, the communist conspiracy, that sort of thing. Yeah, so Hofstede... Is this another straw man? Well, yes, I mean, so what's interesting about Hofstede is as a student of history, of American history, Hofstede is kind of interested in that kind of weird phase during the 19th century and the early 20th century when Hofstetter is writing, where there's a lot of discussion about conspiracies going on within American politics. And he kind of puts it down to what he calls a paranoid style. Now, it's Mm. important to note Hofstetter isn't trying to make the claim that People who believe in conspiracy theories are paranoid. He actually goes at length to say, look, I'm not making a psychological or clinical diagnosis of actual paranoia. I'm simply saying the kind of thing that the conspiracy theorist espouses looks an awful lot like paranoia. We take it that paranoia is irrational. So belief in conspiracy theories is going to be irrational in some sense as well. And what's kind of interesting about Hofstede's work is that even though it's incredibly influential and has driven, I'd say, a lot of the social science work subsequently, although actually what is interesting is Hofstede doesn't really get cited all that much in modern literature. He's kind of been replaced by social psychologists making essentially the same kind of argument. But Hofstadter was being critiqued for this position within 10 years of writing that piece back in the 50s. So Gordon Wood, writing about conspiracy theories in American history, goes, look, Hofstadter's position is ahistorical because here are some other examples that don't fit his idea that these people are acting in a paranoid fashion. Here are examples where they were right to be suspicious about things. Mm. But once again, you've got this kind of generalist critique, which makes it very easy to go, well, we can dismiss this particular thing. And it does seem to have been picked up upon and 
used or even potentially weaponized by other people. Indeed, I think James Tracy talked about the weaponization of the term subsequent to this by the CIA in the 60s, um, which is very interesting. And I don't wish to pin the blame just on them, because I'm sure it's been, and I'm quite convinced that it's been weaponized a lot since then as well. Um, all right, let's turn to section one of this book, which uh, is called The Particularist Turn in the Philosophy of Conspiracy Theories. I'm interested to know why you call it the particularist turn, because that suggests there's a turning of the tide in some way, something of a paradigm shift, to use that phrase, uh, from one thing to another. Is is that going on? Yes, and actually this kind of comes about due to the work of Patrick Stokes, who's Associate Professor of Philosophy at Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia. Ah. And in one of the papers he wrote for the Social Epistemology Review and Reply Collective, he went, look, it's actually quite unusual, but within philosophy, there is a consensus on a topic, and that consensus is particularism is the right view to take when it comes to assessing individual conspiracy theories. Now, there's a caveat to that. There are some philosophers out there who aren't particularists. Uh, so the British philosopher Kassam Kwasam is very much a generalist oh. about conspiracy theories. Uh, and there are other philosophers like Keith Harris and the like who have much more generalist views. But the majority of philosophers working on conspiracy theory theory largely agree that particularism is the right attitude to have. Hmm. And that is kind of a turn in the academic literature given just how prominent and popular generalism is in other disciplines. Mm. Now, that's interesting you say Patrick Stokes says that because he is presented in the book as what he calls a reluctant particularist. And I think somebody in the book said that he has turned more towards particularism himself over the years. Yes. So the first section of the book basically is a series of call and responses to my article, When Inferring to Conspiracy Theory Might Be the Best Explanation, with Pat Stokes going, that's all fine and good, but at the same time, there are some ethical concerns about particularism. Yeah. Lee Basham then replies going, no, there isn't. Uh, Pat then replies, yes, there is. And then I go, well, Yes and no. I mean, Pat's right to go, we need to bring the ethics of how we deal with conspiracy theories into the discussion. But at the same time, that doesn't mean we should be reluctant to be particularist. Although I actually think that Pat has become more of a particularist with time, although he will probably make the claim that I've adopted more of his ethical concerns into my work as time has gone by. Yes. Okay. Well, it's very interesting, this idea of the reluctant particularist, because I mean, some of the statements he makes, well, I've got a quote here from him. Uh, this is from page 33. We are morally obliged to reject some theories, even at the risk of occasionally being wrong. Um, that doesn't strike me as right at all, because are we not morally obliged to consider all theories, because there's a risk that some very serious ones might be right. You know, <laughs> that does worry me. Yes, and I mean, it's a concern I share as well. So where I think Pat is correct is that the threshold for accusation when it comes to accusing people of being in conspiracies is sometimes artificially too low. 
So Pat's concern is that one of the problems about conspiracy theorizing is that when you start making accusations that particular people are involved in conspiracies, you're actually leveling accusations of unethical or immoral behavior for the most part on actual people in the world. Mm. And you need to kind of cross a really high evidential threshold before you start making serious accusations towards people. Right. Now, the obvious response to that is that's true in some cases. So if you Julians go around and loudly proclaiming in the street that your next door neighbor is a murderer based mm. upon very little evidence, <laughs> most people are going to look at you pretty weirdly and go, has he not had enough coffee today? Has he had too much coffee today? What's he putting in his coffee sure, anyway? Sure. But if you're a police officer and you start throwing around accusations, we kind of take it there's a license there that the threshold for accusation is different depending on the role you play in society. So I think there are, there are concerns about the way accusations work but we can kind of finesse the talk of that with respect to the roles people play and the threshold of evidence required to pass the, those roles. So mm. had to write to kind of bring that issue up, but at least in the first half of the book, he's reluctant to go all the way and go, well, I mean, someone needs to make those accusations and yes. sometimes it might need to be a citizen that does it. Yes, yes. And I also wonder about the direct accusation. Um, in my experience, it's very often not that. It's more a sense of this, as often people say, only asking questions. But yes, asking questions and saying, well, there's something going on here. And it could be this kind of entity or that kind of entity or a combination of entities without actually necessarily pinpointing anything. That, in a sense, is a kind of conspiracy theory, but nobody's accused. Or maybe very loosely, maybe in the sense of, well, where was so-and-so at that time? Which doesn't directly accuse somebody. I didn't feel that that nuance came up in his work that was presented in the book. Yes, and I think there is something to that, because you're right. Often the kind of accusations that get made don't tend to be awfully specific of, it was Prince Philip mm. at Windsor Castle on July the 8th, yes. 1977. Normally, it's a, it's a member of the royal family, mm. and they probably did it at this particular year, but we don't really know who it was or exactly when it was. We just know that the evidence points towards these people being the most likely perpetrators. And this actually goes back to another recurrent issue that you get in the literature, which is that sometimes we're a little bit too fixated on notable examples of conspiracy theorists rather than what really typically happens in conspiracy theory communities. Uh -huh. So this is a something which I've argued about quite a bit, which is we tend to really like to focus on the David Ikes or Alex Joneses <laughs> yes, of the world. It's true. Yep. And the thing is, what makes David Icke and Alex Jones really interesting as conspiracy theorists is they are not normal conspiracy theorists. Most people that we might call conspiracy theorists, are putting that in air quotes there, don't have multimedia empires or go around the world giving eight to ten hour lectures to packed out 
auditoriums. I mean, <laughs> no, we like no. to pick on them. Would they be closer to the conspiracist idea, would you say, both of those figures? Uh, well, I mean, actually, that gets you into a really awkward uh-huh. question as to whether you think they're being sincere. Okay. So I sometimes think that Alex Jones simply says things because he knows it'll keep his audience buying the products and the advertisers on Infowars incessantly. So he's always going on about selling his survival food or vitality pills. And Ike does have quite the publishing empire when it comes to books, websites, and the like. And sometimes, sometimes I'm tempted to think that maybe Ike simply is putting on an act of some particular kind because it's a lucrative market to hold. Other times, I mean, I interviewed David Icke for the mm. podcast many, many years mm. ago. And if it is an act, it's a very good act. But mm. at the same time, I'm not always entirely sure he's being sincere when he makes certain claims. Mm. Oh, interesting. You actually spoke to him. I've had a lot of people ask me to speak to him, um, and I've decided not to because I just thought we would get into an argument. Well, but uh, how, how did that go, by so, the way? Well, so the thing which is interesting about David Icke is that as a trained sport journalist, he's an incredibly good public speaker. Right. So I think from memory, we interviewed David Icke for just over an hour. Josh and I asked him probably four questions at most, and then he gave 15-minute long answers. So you actually probably couldn't get into an argument with him Uh because you wouldn't have time. To actually get a word in. Ah, okay. Well, perhaps I did the right thing then, because I would end up looking like I was uh, advocating all his views in that case if I couldn't get a word in Edgeway. Okay. Um, yes, um, I had a thought about... Um, there are a lot of responses to Stokes. And one thing I thought was whether if his reluctant particularism were to become the order of the day, wouldn't that help to encourage bad conspiracy theorizing i mean if if there's certain ideas are deemed beyond the pale we shouldn't go there we shouldn't talk about those responsible people shouldn't think about those things then wouldn't that then open up the door to less responsible people to develop and perpetuate such ideas you know without being challenged by more responsible thinkers because they've been following pat stokes advice on this yes actually this this is a worry that I share about a whole bunch of proposals that's been put forward. So David Cody, who's another contributor to the book, has recently started to argue that we just shouldn't be talking about conspiracy theories. The The term is so loaded. Hmm. It's so pejorative. Hmm. It functions as a form of what the philosopher Jason Stanley calls undermining propaganda the best thing to do would be for academics to just not use the term, just go back to the way that we talked about plots and capers in the past. And my response to that, which is kind of the same response that you're proposing to Stokes there, is surely that's a dangerous maneuver because it doesn't really do anything if people in positions of power are still able to weaponize a pejorative term in public discourse. So to use another example, so people have argued that we should stop talking about fake news because like the term conspiracy theory, it acts as a kind of undermining propaganda. Mm. It's something which is used by powerful people to label news about them that they don't like as being fake rather than genuine. So we should stop talking about fake news so that that term doesn't have any rhetorical force. 
And my response to that is, why do you think the politicians will stop using the term? Just because academics stop talking about fake news doesn't mean that Trump or a successor to Trump, uh, say like your Viktor Orban mm. in Hungary, isn't going to use that term to control debate nonetheless. Yes, yes. Well, but, but then in Trump's defence, and I've rarely come to Trump's defence, maybe he's right, therefore, to use the term fake news back at the mainstream media in order to establish that, well, there's fake news everywhere if you look hard enough. So perhaps rather than getting rid of the term, we should just use it even more, including conspiracy theory. Well, yes. I mean, my position on this is when we talk about these things, we need to be quite clear about how we're defining these things so that then when people are using the terms insincerely, we can explain why that's an insincere use of the term. Mm. So if someone says, oh, that's just fake news, you want to go, well, actually, what really qualifies as fake news is blah, blah, blah and blah. And you're just insincerely referring to genuine news as fake because you don't like it. And that's a bad thing to do. And then you engage in some kind of chastisement. Whew. Well, that's difficult, isn't it, in a normal life to do that? Um, I suppose you could just ask, well, what do you mean by fake news and have a, a gradually unfolding conversation, that sort of thing? Maybe <laughs> maybe you're bolder than I am. I couldn't, I couldn't say that to somebody else. I mean, once again, that's a kind of utopic thing. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, yeah, I just wanted to ask one more thing here about this aspect to uh, Stokes's work here. He says that we yeah. should, we well, seem to say that we should trust our societies, particularly in the West, and um, we should be very, very reluctant to conspiracy theorise if those theories touch on what he calls, I think, patterns and tropes. Well, actually, I don't like the word trope. It's used in the media an awful lot. Um, so one trope would be anti-Semitism that might be linked to a phrase like New World Order or something like that. Um, and yet, of course, you know, mainstream politicians will say New World Order and they won't be thinking anything anti-Semitic at all. So anyway, but he, he cautions against dealing in conspiracy theories that would connect to these patterns and tropes. Um I, I don't know, I found that all very uncomfortable because you can see a pattern and a trope, as it were, anywhere, can't you? That almost disallows one from thinking about most conspiracies. Yes, and actually, I mean, I've thought about this subsequent to the book. So a paper that I have been working on recently has been looking at the ways in which particularists have argued that they don't believe particular types of conspiracy theory are worth taking seriously. So it turns out that particularists end up being suspicious about certain conspiracy theories they encounter in the world, but they have to tell stories as to why they find those conspiracy theories suspicious. So in conversation with Pat, when we were working on the articles for the Social Epistemology Review and Reply Collective, and then the chapters that turned up in the book Taking Conspiracy Theories Seriously, I kind of touched upon the idea that, yes, there are these recurrent narratives we find in certain conspiracy theories, which end up being, you know, you get the coded reference to the Jew within a whole bunch of conspiracy theories. And you go, well, that just sounds like the normal anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that we've heard time and time again, and they've always turned out to be bad in the past, so... Why would we think this is going to be good now? Because it's relying more on the racism as a most motivating factor than actually arguing there's an actual conspiracy being put forward by a particular group. But the problem, of course, is that that's only a guide for saying we should be suspicious of a particular theory upon hearing it. It doesn't tell us that the theory is necessarily wrong. 
And so to move the story away from racist conspiracy theories towards imagined prejudice towards a non-racial group, think of the large number of climate change conspiracy theories that say that there's a deep conspiracy within the halls of climatology to show that climate change is happening when it's not, and that it's all just a large scam because climatologists are trying to enact some kind of social order or bringing about more research funding for their discipline. And you might go, well, look, most of the time when we investigate these conspiracy theories, they actually don't seem to be particularly good. So that gives us a reason to think the next time someone puts forward a similar conspiracy theory about climate change, it's going to be bad as well. But imagine one day that the poor, maligned climatologists who have never done any bad thing whatsoever go, look, we've been looking at the prospectus for the Earth. And if we don't do something to stop runaway climate change in the next 15 years, we're all dead. So we should start doing what we've been accused of doing the entire time. Let's fake some data. Let's exaggerate the results. Let's get people really, really scared that the climate's going to be a disaster in five years' time, such that they then inspire their governments to do things and we actually bring around a, a climate change policy that stops us from going over the brink. There's nothing stopping there being a conspiracy at the heart of climatology starting tomorrow, even if it turns out that previously all of those conspiracy theories about the self-same group were false in the past. So we have to go, look, it tells us that these theories are in some sense suspicious, but it doesn't tell us anything about whether the next one we hear yes. is true or false. Right. So in that case, assuming that story you've told, if that were a true story, then somebody like Stokes, for example, could say, well, no, you shouldn't give any credence to that new conspiracy. It turns out to be a real conspiracy because of the, according to the story you've told, because the pattern of conspiracy hitherto was false. <laughs> we should indeed be suspicious of that pattern, but nevertheless have the freedom to investigate the current possible conspiracy because it may be anywhere a real conspiracy. Have I got you right there? Yeah. I mean, someone needs to investigate these claims. Mm. And, and I'm sure we'll get to the discussion at the end of the book. I have a, a suggestion as to how that should work, which hopefully gets around the kind of ethical concerns that Pat has. Yes. But there does need to be someone or some group of people taking these claims seriously, even if your mm. initial response to hearing the conspiracy theory is, oh, we've heard this one before, and it's been false in the past, but it might not be false this time. That's interesting. And I just have to say in passing that I do have my own doubts about this aspect of climate science. But, you know, this is interesting because we'll come on to this, no doubt, in a, in a few minutes as well. You know, when is a conspiracy a conspiracy theory? To what extent is something a paradigm within which people are working, in which there may be some elements or have been some elements of conspiracy that have conditioned a paradigm? I think, you know, there are a lot of questions to ask like that about such things. I just noted that because it was brought up as, you know, the AGW hoax. And my my initial reaction to that is, yeah, but my questions are not quite like that. I don't think the whole thing is a hoax, but I am concerned about the paradigm much in the same sort of way as I'm concerned about the 
Hegelian paradigm in the 19th century or the Bultmannian in theology paradigm in the, in the 20th century, etc. And if you didn't think that way, you just weren't going to get the right positions and all that kind of thing. So I, you know, I think once one starts to pick out particular examples like that, it's pretty difficult to talk about. I don't know if you want to respond to that or shall I just move on to the next section? Well, no, I mean, it, I mean, it does speak to the fact that when we're dealing with complex social phenomena, we're not just dealing with individuals with intentions. We're also dealing with institutions. Yes. And I mean, any academic worth their salt will go, well, you know, there are funding decisions that get made in particular bodies which are all about politics and not about science. I mean, the common example that gets used in the philosophy of science is the weird fixation on string theory in physics. There are a lot of classical physicists who think that string theory is only being promoted because the people at the very top of the chain are trained mathematicians, and string theory is really easy for a mathematician to do, whilst the actual requirement to do classical physics using experimentation and the building of apparatus and testing hypotheses in real-world conditions is hard, so funding has gone towards what people at the top think is what should be going on, rather than what people at the bottom think ought to be the thing which is studied. Mm. And that may or may not be a conspiracy depending on how self-aware people are at the top of the chain. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, you can you can ask these questions about the way that institutions license or deny particular questions, which can be a separate issue from putting forward there's a conspiracy going on to stop or start a particular research program. Yeah. Very, very complex to analyse. The other aspect of Stokes' work that came up in this book, later on in the book actually, was this borrowing from Imre Lakatos, the philosopher of science, the idea of the degenerative theory. So here is the accusation that conspiracy theories tend to be degenerative programmes where maybe there is a core idea to this particular conspiracy theory, but there's a kind of secondary belt of theories that support this main contention. And because of that secondary belt of ideas, when the main idea, the main conspiracy theory is sort of failing evidentially, it can be supported by these other ideas. And therefore, the whole thing is kind of unfalsifiable and... Therefore, as far as Stokes is concerned, um, this is kind of immoral because you're, you will in that case be putting the theory, your pet theory before the harm that it might do. Um, can you talk about that? I mean, I have concerns about this idea. Um, I'm not sure how well that idea of the degenerative program actually works. What do you think? So this is very close to an argument that Steve Clark, another Australian philosopher made back in the early 2000s. I think it's an episteme in 2008. I've forgotten the name of the paper offhand, where he talks about degenerative research programs, although he's kind of talking more in a Kuhnian sense. Actually, no, no, he is talking in a Lakatosian sense. And so the idea that as a conspiracy theory matures, but fails to gain adequate evidence such that we consider it to be a warranted theory, one that we ought to believe, mm. then you can kind of rescue the theory by putting ad hoc modifications, yeah. just putting more and more auxiliary theories around it, and that kind of saves the theory from being falsified, but at the cost of making it this kind of lumbering giant where it's really more about trying to prove other theories wrong mm. 
that it is about trying to prove your theory right. Mm. Now, I'm sure that does occur in some cases, but I don't think it's a typical way that conspiracy theories work, in part because it's actually not a particularly good model for talking about how scientific theories change and adapt in the first instance. And also, as Brian Keeley pointed out back in 1999, the difference between a scientific theory and a conspiracy theory is that electrons don't lie (laughs) to you. People do. If there is a conspiracy going on, you can expect people to be putting disinformation out about that conspiracy. Absolutely. And so making predictions about disinformation isn't actually a failure of your theory Mm. if there are actually people out there putting out disinformation about your theory. Yes. Well, this is going to be the conspiracy theorist in me, but hopefully the rational one. (laughs) I fairly frequently identify pieces of information in the media about particular theories that come out subsequent to whatever event it is. And I often find myself thinking, well... That doesn't really do anything to undermine my suspicions about this event. It seems more plausible, especially there might be some suspicious things about that piece of information. I think that's planted. And if the particular theory, you know, is a strong suspicion, is a strong theory, I would expect that sort of thing to arise. Um, I don't want to go into particular examples, but time and again, that's happened. I, I almost feel as if it's a modus operandi, you know, that that would be exploited the knowledge that there is this criticism that you've just been talking about, that, oh, yes, you know, if you've got a failing theory, you're going to support it with these other auxiliary theories, that 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 in some cases would be known and exploited to put things in the media so that people can then say, oh, look, you see there, even though such and such has come out subsequent to the event, these conspiracy theorists still hold on to their pet theory, how ridiculous they are. Surely that would be exploited. Well, yes. I mean, one of the things which we kind of learned during the Blair years is the idea of spin, that there are PR people Mm, mm. in the government who are, their entire job is to put information out that makes the government look good, even in the worst of circumstances. So we know that sometimes the media is manipulated by people to make a bad outcome look as if it was a thing that was planned in the first place. So when I was doing ancient history back at the University of Auckland, the lecturer in Egyptology talked about the fact that Egyptian pharaohs never wrote about defeats. Even in cases where they were defeated, they made sure that the stelae that described the battle wrote the story of the battle in such a way that it made it look as if they had engaged in a great victory. Mm. Even if it turned out, actually, they almost had been beheaded and was forced to marry someone and then return back to Egypt, their figurative tail between their legs. And I mean, there's something which happens here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and I'm fairly sure it probably happens in the UK as well. Governments tend to release reports of bad news on a Friday, because they know it's not going to lead the news for the next few days mm-hmm. because people don't don't pay attention to news broadcasts on the weekend. So you you release information at the right time of the week and you can be fairly sure it'll be buried by something that happens over the weekend. And you don't need to have any theory about a conspiracy there. You just go, well, actually, 
that's the way political communications work. Hmm. And we hmm. know people are engaging in that kind of manipulation of the media landscape, whether it be governments or corporations. I mean, the other example, I don't know whether you saw after the expose about what it's like to be a warehouse worker in the US for Amazon, the number of Twitter accounts. So they said, oh, but I'm a factory worker at Amazon and my life is great. And people went, yeah, these are bots. These are bots which have probably been paid for by Amazon's PR company to make Amazon look really, really good. And that's where we're going to leave things for today. The conversation is a long one, so I'm splitting it into two parts. This part you've just heard, and the second part hopefully in seven days from now, when I've had a chance to edit it. So in this part, we've been sort of preparing the ground for discussion, and then going on to the first section of the book called The Particularist Turn in the Philosophy of Conspiracy Theories. In the second part of the discussion, we go on to talk about the second section, funnily enough, uh, perhaps the more dramatic section in some ways called Diagnosing Conspiracy Theory Theorists, which looks at the tendency by many to want to pathologize people who dare to contemplate conspiracy theories, or indeed conspiracy theory theorists, and uh, some of the reasons why that pathologization is going on, why that in itself is not a good thing, and what, if anything, can be done to create a healthy culture, not a pathological culture, a healthy one in which conspiracy theories can be taken seriously, as indeed they should be taken seriously. Doesn't mean they're all true, doesn't mean they're all false, but the business of conspiracy theorising itself should be taken seriously. So I very much hope you've enjoyed that first part of my interview with Dr. MRX Dentith. Don't forget to check the show notes where you will find a link to this excellent book edited by Dr. Dentith entitled Taking Conspiracy Theories Seriously. That link will go through to the Roman and Littlefield website. And if you have enough pennies to spare, as I said in the interview, not a few pennies, I'm afraid. Sorry about that. I do encourage you to buy a copy or if not, to try to get a copy to read through your library system, if you have access to one. Um, other documentation, of course, as usual, in the show notes. So do stay tuned for part two of this conversation. A lot more to come, a lot more ground to cover, hopefully coming out in the next seven days. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles of themindsrenewed.com, and my guest, Dr. M.R. Extentith. And I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the very near future.